Matthew 25 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 31 to 46. And Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before, sorry, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. This is a disturbing part of the Word of God to read. When we read it this morning together, it should frighten us, it should shock us and disturb us. And actually, it challenges a lot of common ideas about what there is ahead of us, not just in our lives, but when our lives finish. You know, if you speak to people today, you've got people who say, well, death's the end, that's it. And uh, let's put a smiley face on things and just make the best of it. That's not very comforting. And there are those who kind of cling to some sort of optimistic hope that everything will be okay when your life is finished. I've got a good friend, Christian, and I uh, don't think he plays squash anymore, but he, for many years he was active in his local squash club and he got to know lots of people in the town that he lived in. One of the people he regularly played squash with died very suddenly, so he went along to the funeral and he said to me, it was unbelievable. Everybody came into 
the post of the funeral was being held, and there was a cardboard cutout of the man who died, and he was pointing at the audience, and he was laughing. And the music that was played was Bob Marley and the Wailers, everything's gonna be all right. And it was kind of this unrealistic, optimistic view that everything was going to be okay. But even people who would kind of understand a little bit about what the Bible says, sometimes just tag Christian hymns and other things onto a funeral service. I hope that somehow the future is going to be okay. This text would challenge all of that thinking. Now let's be clear, for Christians, there is a hope for the future. Do you know, recently in Fernley, uh, a dear sister who was part of this fellowship ended her life, and a lot of us were very sad, but we are happy that we have the assurance of the word of God that she has gone to be with Christ, which is far better. She's in heaven now. But even when we think about heaven, the Christian's hope is in fact a new heaven and a new earth. And Second Peter talks about that. Peter talks about that. He talks about, in Second Peter 1 verse 11, about entering an eternal kingdom. Now that's difficult to grasp because the kingdom of God, we've been thinking about in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen that the kingdom of God exists now. It is the reign of God in the life of those who follow Christ. But there is an eternal kingdom. There's going to be an unending kingdom of God, in which Peter says in chapter 3, righteousness dwells permanently. And uh, he talks about that in 2 Peter 3, that the present world and the heavens will be burned up and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the hope of all Christians, that one day we will be part of that new heaven and new earth and that eternal kingdom. Do you know this text today would tell us that you can't just presume to be there. And in fact, what this text is telling us today is that Christ's return that he's been speaking about in these verses means there will be judgment. Judgment. Did you see that in verse 32? Um, Jesus says, Before all will be gathered all the nations, and he will, he will separate people. The separation. It's not automatic that everybody is going to share in God's eternal kingdom. But there's going to be separation. There's going to be judgment. You know, judgment and the judgment of God is not a new teaching as we read it here in Matthew 25. It's all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe you notice that in chapter 11, verse 24, and in chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus condemns the people 
who lived in the towns and villages in Galilee where he lived because they were privileged to see him and follow the miracles and hear the words that he spoke, but they didn't respond. And Jesus says it would be better for other cities that are characterized by wit wickedness and the day of judgment because they didn't have that opportunity. So he talks about a day of judgment. But what about chapter 13, that collection of parables of the kingdom? In chapter 13, verse 24 to 30, the Lord Jesus talks about the parable of the weeds. Maybe you remember that story. A man sowed wheat and during the night an enemy put in tears and his, his workers came to him and said, well, what do we do here? And the owner says, don't pull them up now, just leave them. And then later the weeds will get pulled out and burned and the wheat will be left. That's a parable that's indicating judgment. There's a separation of the wheat and the tears. And then in the same chapter, chapter 13, verse 47 to 50, there's the parable of the net. About a man throwing a net into the sea and pulling it in with the fish. And that's what they did in, in the Sea of Galilee. They do it all over the world. A man, a single man with a net, he throws it in and he pulls in the fish. And there's all types of fish. And he sorts them out. He keeps the good ones and he discards the bad ones. Fishermen even do that here in this country. There's the idea of separation. It's the idea of judgment. The fisherman makes that judgment. Here's a good one. Keep it. Here's a bad one. We'll throw it out. So the idea of judgment isn't something new that Jesus introduces here, but it's all the way through the gospel. Here we read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, the forum will be gathered all the nations, literally all the peoples. And so it's comprehensive judgment. It's everyone. And just in case you're thinking, well, what about all the people that have died? Jesus talked on a previous occasion about his role as judge in John chapter 5, much earlier in his public ministry, when he was in Jerusalem, he healed a man at Solomon's colonnade, the Pool of Bethesda, as it's called, in Jerusalem. And the man was unable to move, and Jesus told him to get up, and he was healed. The problem there, as was the case on many occasions, was it was the Sabbath day. And so the Jews, particularly the religious leaders, they questioned the man and they said, who, who healed you? And he didn't know, but he found out that it was Jesus. And so the Jews were angry and were against Jesus because of that. And so Jesus says to them this, my father is at work and I am at work too. Now what sort of argument is that? He's thinking about how life was in Israel at this time. If you lived there, 
and uh, you, you were born into a family, if your father was a farmer, the chances are you would fall on and be a farmer. Or if your family had a baking business, you, you would be part of that. There was none of this looking for a career path or what's, what's your career choices in life. You just followed in the family footsteps. And Jesus is saying this miracle, think of it this way, my father, God, is at work and I am at work too. And so his work was to heal this man. And the Jews had that controversy about whether God worked and kept the Sabbath. And they concluded that he had to, otherwise everything would disintegrate. And so Jesus says, my father is at work and I am at work too. And he says, don't marvel at the work of this man being healed. There's something far greater than this. He says, there's a time and it's, it's now when... The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those that live, those that hear will live. And then he says, there's another marvel. There's a time coming when the dead, those that, that are in the graves, will hear the voice of the Son of God. Some will rise to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. So it's everyone, everyone that's ever lived. And here at the end of this discourse, Jesus is talking about a day of judgment. His return will bring about a day of judgment. Now notice that he is the judge. In John chapter 5, he says that the Father has given me authority to judge. And he talks about judgment there. And he is the judge. Now, I think it's quite helpful to reflect on the fact that our legal system is a little bit different from what the Bible talks about when we talk about judge. Because in many cases, courts and case, it's not the judge that's making the decision about what's right and wrong. That's decided another way. The judge is simply putting on some robes to show that he's acting in an official capacity on behalf of the queen or the government. But here, the judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the owner, he's the originator and the owner of the whole universe. And so, that's a much more serious thing than standing in front of a judge wearing a wig and a gown in the court here. It's to stand before the judge of all the earth. Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, says to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth be right? The answer, of course, is yes. And now here is the judge of all the earth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the one making the judgment. Verse 32, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now here's another wonderful picture that the Lord Jesus picks up from everyday life that people would have been familiar. We've thought about some of them already. The wheat and the tares. The man throwing the net out. Here's another one. A shepherd is gathering his animals at the end of the day and there's a mixture of sheep and goats. 
And for whatever reason, the Lord Jesus doesn't say, could have been because at night sheep require more warmth than sheep do. But the two breeds of animals are separated. So the shepherd, he stands there as the animals are brought in and puts the sheep to his right and puts the goats to his left. There is that separation. And we can see that there are consequences here. The Lord says to the sheep in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is God's eternal kingdom. And he says, come. The kingdom is for you to enter in. But for the other group, the goats, he says, depart from me, verse 41, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the picture of the sheep and goats is a separation, it's a judgment, and there are eternal consequences. For the sheep, it is to enter God's eternal kingdom, but for the goats, it is to enter everlasting punishment. Now let's think more closely about these verses, because it's possible to get the meaning wrong for these. And here's, here's the first wrong interpretation that we're going to think about. If you go to the BBC website, in fact, I think it's bite-sized revision this is in, so this is for school kids. The BBC's spin on this is that Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, Jesus is teaching that we should look after the poor. And that's the spin that the BBC website puts on it. Now, don't get me wrong, we should help the poor. And there are dozens of texts in the Bible that would exhort us to help the poor. That's a good thing to do. But this is not a text that's telling us we should help the poor. It kind of comes down to who are the people that Jesus is talking about in verse 40. He says, truly I say to you, you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What's he talking about there? That's, that's how we determine what the meaning of this is. Some people think that my brothers means just everybody. And that's where the idea that this is about helping the poor comes from. Others think that it means Jews, people's brothers, people, uh, Jesus, the brothers of Jesus in the sense of other Jews, but there's nowhere else that Jesus ever speaks in these terms. And in fact, the answer is already in the Gospel of Matthew for us. Matthew 12, verse 48 to 49, Jesus is there in the middle of a crowd of people and he's been performing miracles, he's been teaching, and his mother and his brothers and sisters come and they're waiting outside to speak to him. And somebody comes and says to Jesus, out there, there's your mother and your relatives. Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, who are my mother and my brothers and sisters? And he points 
to his disciples, his followers, and his brothers and sisters. So here in this text, it's not the poor, generally speaking, that are being helped, and that's the reason for distinguishing between the sheep and the goats. This is to do with the followers of Jesus. We'll think of more about that just in a moment. But here's another wrong interpretation of these verses that perhaps is more serious. Somebody reading this might think, here's the sheep. They're getting into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. They're welcomed in because they did something. And you could easily read this and perhaps think, here's salvation by works. That means you achieve salvation, a relationship with God, eternal security from it by doing something. And you'll see that that's not the case because with both the sheep and the goats, they just didn't appreciate that what they were doing was in fact being noticed and evaluated by the Lord Jesus. And we'll think more about that in a moment. In this text, we need to keep in mind the overall teaching of Matthew and his gospel. If you go back to chapter 1, Matthew tells us that before the Lord Jesus was born, Joseph was thinking about what he was going to do. And it was in his mind to put Mary away because she was expecting a baby and it was a disgrace and the angel said don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the baby is of the Holy Spirit and then the angel says the baby is to be given the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and that's kind of an important theme that we need to carry through the Holy Gospel. That it's Jesus who saves his people from their sins. So we've got the idea of salvation. Salvation means to be rescued, to be delivered. What is it that we are saved from? R.C. Sproul, um, many of you will know his books, um, tells the story, or told the story, about when he was visiting a university and he was going to be giving uh, a lecture and he was kind of a bit behind so he's looking at his watch and he's walking hurrying through the campus when suddenly a man jumped out in front of him and stopped him from going any further and said to him are you saved and Sproul was a bit taken aback so he said to the man saved from what and the man looked at him blankly and Sproul said, look, do you mean I've been saved or that I'm being saved or that I will be saved? And the man didn't understand any of that. And Sproul wrote a little book that you can buy. And that's a really important point that he makes, that salvation includes three aspects. There's salvation past so when a person becomes a, becomes a Christian and they come in faith, 
to the Lord Jesus and they look to the cross and realize that they're sinners, but that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and trust in him. Then the moment that person places faith and trust in Christ, they are saved. They are saved from the penalty of their sins. They're saved from the penalty of their sins. There's no time ever if they've got their faith in Christ, they will ever face God and have a penalty to pay for their sin. Because Christ has suffered on the cross and bore the penalty that they deserve. But that's not the end of the story. Because salvation has also got a present aspect. And Christ's work on the cross not only saves people from the penalty of sin, but saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And if you want to know more about that, Paul deals with it in Romans, that central section, chapters 5, 6, 7, I guess, where he deals with the reality of Christian faith. It's not just salvation from the penalty of our sins, but it's to live a different life. And so... There's the present tense of salvation. And then there's the future tense of salvation. And that's kind of what's in this parable where the Lord Jesus says to the sheep, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The Christian's hope is a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal kingdom where we will be saved from the presence of sin. Won't be a cursed world or a universe it will be a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells permanently. So salvation means salvation from the penalty of sin, but also transforming power in our lives. And then one day when we will be saved from the presence of sin. So when we come to read this parable and the king says to the sheep, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the sheep say, Lord, when did, when did this happen? And he says in verse 40, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. What the king is doing here is he's pointing to evidence in the lives of the sheep that they are truly saved. And there's transformed lives here. We thought about the least of his brothers as the disciples. Pretty soon after he gave this teaching the Mount of Olives, Jesus is going to say to his disciples in John 13, by this shall all men know that you are my you are my disciples by your love for one another not your doctrinal statement not what you say not even um, how you meet together but by your love for one another and if you read the early chapters of acts you'll see that in action in the early church people living a completely different way and of course the problem with the goats is that they didn't 
live this way. And so the Lord says, you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Reminds you of Paul, doesn't it? In the Acts of the Apostles, uh, we read about Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul, and he persecuted the Christians. He went after them to put them in prison, to kill them, to wipe them out. And then in Acts 9 verse 4, he's on the road to Damascus, he's got permission to round up the Christians, and he meets the risen Lord Jesus. He's struck down by the majesty of his glory, and he hears the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's kind of what the Lord Jesus is speaking about here. Uh, you did not do it to one of the least of these, so you didn't do it to me. Paul learned that in persecuting the church, he was really standing against Christ. And so, in this parable, we've got the sheep and the goats. And the Lord Jesus is showing that in the lives of the sheep, there's evidence of change. There's evidence of salvation. In the goats, there's no evidence of salvation. Now that's very challenging this morning as we think about this judgment. We think about our own lives. Is there evidence in my life of what the Lord Jesus is speaking about? Of course, these things in themselves are not the important thing. The important thing is to have our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, consequently, there will be a change. Now, you might be saying, well, are you sure that there's always a change in people's lives? The consistent emphasis in the New Testament is that people who know Christ are changed. Even people that didn't have much opportunity. Think of the dying thief. One point, he's with the other guy that was crucified with him. And the two of them are hurling insults at Christ. But something happens, there's a change. You see the change? He argues and says, why are you saying this? This, this man hasn't done anything wrong. We're suffering and we deserve it, this man's done nothing in this. And he says, Lord, remember me. So there was evidence there of a change in his life, even though he only had, literally, a few minutes. And so the challenge this morning is, where are we? If we were to finish our lives today, what would be our destination? Would we be like the sheep and welcomed into the eternal kingdom, are like the goats and put into eternal punishment. Notice there's no second chance here. This is final judgment. It's the kingdom prepared from before the foundation of the world. Peter calls it the eternal kingdom. There is everlasting fire, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A very solemn text, but it brings to us this morning the importance of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless his word this morning. Father, help us to listen to your voice today, to listen to the voice of your spirit as he would show
show us the truth of these things. Father, we pray that if today there's somebody who hasn't put their trust and their faith in Christ, then they may do so today and know his power in their lives and know assurance that one day they will share in his eternal kingdom. So, Father, we pray for your word. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name. Amen.